Hi there. Thank you for choosing to listen to this sermon. We pray that God would use this as an added resource to benefit you in conjunction with you belonging to a local church near you. This sermon was preached at Central Baptist Church Pretoria. 130 years of believers loving God, caring for one another and impacting the world. Well friends, it's uh, it's good to see each and every one of you this morning. It's a little bit warm outside and it's even warm in the house today, but I, I trust that we're going to be fired up as we look at God's Word, large passage of Scripture this morning. You can turn in your Bibles to the book of Mark. Mark is in the New Testament, Matthew and then Mark. Luke, John, get the revelation, you've gone too far. Uh, Matthew, Mark. Mark chapter 2 kind of follows on from a passage of Scripture I preached a few weeks ago in Mark chapter 1, but this morning we're going to go from Mark chapter 2 verse 1 all the way through to Mark chapter 3 verse 6. I hope food is in the slow cooker. (laughs) I'm not going to read through all of this, but rather teach it as we go through the passage, else we will be here a rather long period. Even before I come to praying, let me ask you the fundamental question I hope we're going to answer this morning from God's Word. Friends, who is your authority? Who's your authority? And who is the authority in this church? Who's the authority in the church? That's the question that we're going to answer from Mark chapter 2 to Mark chapter 3 verse 6. Let's bow our heads and ask the Lord to help us as we go through this passage of Scripture. Father God, I thank you for your word. I'm reminded in your word that men are like grass and their glories are like the flowers of the field, the grass that withers, the flowers fall. But the word of the Lord, it stands forever. And upon that word this morning, Lord God, we, your people, stand. We ask you to show us the authority. And when that authority is made clear to us, Lord God, make us doers of your word, not merely hearers, that you might receive much praise and glory from a people that have been set aside to you. And this I pray in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ. He is Lord and Savior, amen. First point, and I'm going to take it from Mark chapter 1, uh, Mark chapter 1, Mark chapter 2, verse 1, through Mark chapter 2, verse 12. And if you take notes, the point is this Jesus is the authority because only Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. Let me tell you what I'm going to tell you before I even tell you it. I'm going to say this. Jesus forgives a paralytic's sins. The scribes believe that this is blasphemy. And so he heals the man, demonstrating his divine authority. Let's read through God's word. As I read through it, I'm going to explain it to you. Hopefully, you're going to see what I've just told you from God's word. It starts off in verse 1, and when he returned to Capernaum after some days. 
it's like important to note that this chapter doesn't just start Mark's gospel. Mark's gospel started, obviously, in Mark chapter 1. And in Mark chapter 1, from verse 21 through verse 46, we had a description of Jesus' healing ministry, of Jesus as, as well as the amazement of people as they saw his power and of the people as they recognized his authority and his teaching style. It was reported that he was at home. Turns out Jesus has a house. Um, he stays in a place. Uh, we know he was born in Bethlehem, but he didn't live in Bethlehem. We know that he was raised in Nazareth, uh, but he didn't live in Nazareth at this period in his life. Instead, he stayed in a city, a town called Capernaum. I've been there. It's not a very big place. It was reported that he was at home, and in verse 2, many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic that was carried by four men. I've heard this passage preached many times before. Often it's preached about the miracle of Jesus Christ healing this paralytic. Often it's preached about the faith of these four men that brought their paralytic friend to Jesus Christ. But this morning I'm hoping that you see something deeper from the text. In verse 3 it says, and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. But in verse 4, when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. The roofs in those days, uh, flat roofs allowing for the moving of tiles and various other material that the roof was made with, allowing a hole to be created and this paralytic to be dropped down to Jesus Christ. Verse 5, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. This is a surprise in the text. I mean, you kind of expect, because you've read verse, chapter 1, you kind of expect as, Jesus, as people bring Jesus, a man who isn't well, that Jesus will heal him and demonstrate that he is the Son of God. But not in this chapter, not in this circumstance. As this man is brought to Jesus, Jesus says to him, Son, your sins are forgiven you. Now the opposition starts. Some of the scribes, let me tell you something about scribes. They are not the good guys in this story. But scribes were really just scholars and legal experts that were responsible for transcribing and translating the Torah. Uh, scribes were not Pharisees, and Pharisees were not scribes. We're going to hear about the Pharisees in a bit. But sometimes scribes were Pharisees, and sometimes Pharisees were scribes. They were interchangeable but distinct groupings of people. And these guys were sitting there, and they were questioning him. Now, we expect opposition to come against Jesus, but listen to how these men were questioning Jesus in verse 6. They were questioning them, him 
in their hearts. Verse 7, this is what they were saying, in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive but God alone? Now, there's echoes in their thoughts of the laws on blasphemy against God that are spoken about in Leviticus chapter 24, beginning at the 10th verse. But this is going on not in their lips as they murmur to one another, not in their mouths as they shout out blasphemy to Jesus Christ, but in their hearts. Jesus, who is God, knows what they are thinking. And so from verse 8, we have the response of Jesus to these men. And immediately, Jesus, in verse 8, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to this paralytic your sins are forgiven or to say rise take up your bed and walk well maybe give that some thought because these scribes are sitting listening to Jesus Christ and he asks them this question which is easier to say to a man who has no movement in his legs and has to be dropped in through a roof by four men stand up and walk Or to say to him, your sins are forgiven, I tell you, friends, neither is easier. (laughs) Both are impossible. But because Jesus is God, and because whilst these things are impossible with man, but nothing is impossible with God, he goes on to say in verse 10, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise up, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose immediately, picked up his bed, and and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. But because the scribes were thinking blasphemy, Jesus heals the man as well. What I'm hoping that you see in these first 12 verses is that Jesus forgave a paralytic's sin that the scribes believed that this was blasphemy and so he healed the man demonstrating his divine authority. Who has authority over you? Who has authority in this church? Who has authority in the church? I'm telling you now, it's the one who has authority to forgive sins. That's the first point. Here's the second point, and you can read it from verse 13 in your Bibles. And it's that Jesus has the authority to save sinners. Jesus has the authority to save sinners. Let me tell you what I'm about to tell you before I tell you it, and hopefully you can see it in the text even before I get there. Jesus dines, that's like a 
old man's word, for he had supper, he, he sat down and broke bread with sinners, which antagonizes the self-righteous scribes. And so he states that his mission is to save sinners. That's what Jesus is about to do. Let's see it. The, the scene shifts. It says in verse 13, he went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them and as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now, this man Levi goes by more than one name as many of Jesus' disciples do. Uh, he's also known to us as Matthew, the writer of the Gospels. He was a tax collector. Uh, Jesus, Capernaum is very close to the sea. In fact, it's a fishing village, although it's actually set up a little bit high uh, on the mountains, a crazy walk down to the beach. Um, but Jesus has gone down to the beach and he's walking on the beach. He's walking near the sea, it says. And there he sees Levi and he says to Levi, come. Come with me. I want you. Tax collector? Yes, you. But, but, but I'm a sinner. Nobody wants me. No, Levi, I want you. Come and follow me. But it doesn't end there. Turns out Levi's got friends. We read in verse 15. And as he reclined at the table in his house, this is Levi's house, not Jesus' house, many tax collectors and sinners I get excited when I read that because I even see myself in this crowd. Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples for there were many who followed him. While teaching the crowd, Jesus calls Levi. And then he dines at his house with tax collectors and sinners. As Jesus goes about this task, this ministry, Opposition comes. And now we are introduced to what becomes the theme across the five points, the five stories I'm going to tell you from chapter 2 verse 1 to chapter 3 verse 6. This is why all of these go together. Because in each one of these stories, firstly, we have a scene. The scene is set and Jesus is in it. Secondly, opposition comes against Jesus Christ. But thirdly, Jesus responds to the opposition. This is the second scene. The tax collectors and the sinners are all around Jesus Christ. Here is the opposition. The scribes in verse 16 of the Pharisees, so now we know that some of these scribes are members of the Pharisaic party. Uh, the Pharisees is a sect known for strict adherence to the religious laws, the, the purity laws, the holiness laws, and that they emphasized ritual practices such as tithing and fasting and Sabbath observance. Now these scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they say to his disciples, why? I mean, really, why? Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? These self-righteous men that eat with self-righteous men that look like them and smell like them and sound like them are wondering why Jesus Christ would sit with people just like you and me. Well, here's Jesus' response. 
And when Jesus heard it in verse 17, he said to them, those who are well have no need for a physician. But those who are sick, I came to not call the righteous, but sinners. The scribes confront him and he says that he came for sinners just like you and me. Friends, Jesus Christ has the authority to save sinners. He has the authority to save sinners. Who has authority over your life? Who has authority over this church? Who has authority over the church? It's Jesus Christ because he has authority over men and women just like you and me. But the story doesn't end there. It goes on in chapter 2 verse 18. And now we come to the third point. The third point. That Jesus has authority over man-made tradition. Let me tell you. What I'm going to tell you before I tell you it, maybe you can spot it in the text even before I get there. Other disciples fast. Other disciples fast, but Jesus' disciples do not. This goes against the tradition of the Pharisees. So Jesus replies that now is not the time. The time will come and when it does, things will be different. The scene is set in verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Well, here's the opposition to Jesus Christ. And people came to him and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? The scene is set. The opposition has been made. Here is Jesus Christ's response. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. What Jesus is saying is, just like at a wedding, when the groom is there, it's a time for celebration, not a time to be grumpy. So he is there in the midst of his disciples. Now's the time for joy. But he goes on to say, the day in verse 20 will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and they will fast in that day. Friends, generally, and I'm sure you know this to be true if you've practiced fasting or if you've thought about fasting but haven't got around to it yet and I'd encourage you to do it. But it's generally true that You fast when you are desperate. You fast when you need an answer to prayer. You fast when you need a breakthrough. You generally don't fast when everything is rosy. That's what Jesus is saying. Right now is the time of sunshine. But there's a time of rain which is coming. And it will be appropriate for his disciples to fast then. He says in verse 21, he gives another illustration, another example. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the the patch, it tears away from it. The new from the old, and a worse tear is made. Simply, Jesus is saying, I didn't come to put a patch on the old, dead, dry religion of the Pharisees. 
I came to do something new. He goes on to say and give a third illustration in verse 22. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the old wineskins will burst. The wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine, well that's for new wineskins. Jesus is saying he came to usher in a new covenant. Not a route religious obedience, but rather hearts that have been cut to their core, hearts that are obedient to God out of love. Who has authority? Who has authority in your life? Who has authority in this church? Who has authority in the church? I'm telling you now, it's Jesus Christ. Because he has authority over man-made religion. Well, that gets us to the, uh, the fourth story in our sequence. The fourth story. And it can be read from verse 23. Uh, the heading is authority over the Sabbath. Authority over the Sabbath. Let me tell you what I'm about to tell you. The disciples pluck grain on the Sabbath. The Pharisees accuse them of law-breaking. And so Jesus cites David as an example and asserts his divine authority over the Sabbath. Let's read this together. The scene is set in verse 23. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. Well, that's the scene. What happens in each one of these stories, opposition comes. Here's the opposition. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, what are they doing or what they are doing is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. The Jewish leaders had created 39 melakots. These were laws. These were fences that they put around the laws of Moses in order to ensure that no one got close enough to the actual law of God to break it. Some of these examples of these laws were laws related to reaping and laws related to threshing and laws related to winnowing and laws related to selecting of grains. The bottom line is these laws were man-made, but the disciples are asking, or the disciples, the Pharisees are asking, why do your disciples not hold to man-made traditions? Well, here's Jesus' response in verse 25. And he said to them, have you never read what David did? When he was in need and hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the presence, or the bread of presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. Now, this passage of scripture we actually covered a couple of months ago in 1 Samuel chapter 21. And he goes on to say to them, the Sabbath in verse 28, 
uh, sorry, verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. Who is Lord of the Sabbath? Well, when we think of the Lord of the Sabbath, we think of he who is Lord over all. We think of he who created the heavens and the earth in Genesis chapter 1. And when he saw them, that everything was created in untested perfection, he declared it was very good after six days. And on the seventh day, that Lord rested. Jesus stands before these Pharisees and declares to them that even the Sabbath is subject to him. Because the Son of Man who stands before them is Lord over the Sabbath. Friends, who has authority in your life? Who has authority in this church? Who has authority in the church? The answer is Jesus Christ because only he has authority over the Sabbath. Which brings us to our Last point this morning in chapter 3, verse 1. I can't believe we got through it so quickly. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 1. Let me tell you what the heading is here. Jesus has the authority to do good. Jesus has the authority to do good. Let me tell you what you're going to see in the next six verses. Jesus meets a sick man on the Sabbath. Can you get the connection? The Pharisees hope to accuse him of violating Sabbath law. Jesus heals the man because it's the right thing to do. And so the Pharisees and the Herodians plot to destroy him. Mark 3 as a chapter relates five other stories about different reactions that Jesus that people have to Jesus. And in actual fact, these first six verses might be the start of a new section. They might be the end of the previous section, but I think they probably hold chapter two and chapter three together, which is why I've included it as the fifth point in this sermon. It follows the same format as the previous passages. There is a scene which is set, there's opposition against Jesus Christ, and then he makes a response to those who oppose him. So let's take a look at the scene first in verse 1. Again, he entered the synagogue, shift in scene. And a man was there with a withered hand. I mean, you can see the complexity already because in verse 2, and here comes the opposition, we read, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so they might accuse him. And the bottom line is, These religious scoundrels who have been with us since chapter one of Mark's gospel, but who have been opposing the message of Jesus from chapter two, verse one. These religious, rout, dead, dry men are looking for an opportunity that they might accuse Jesus of something weighty. Something which they can hold against him. Something which they can bring him before the Sanhedrin, the council. Something upon which they can beg that he would die. Verse 3 is his response. And he said to the man with the withered hand, I'm so sorry, not today. 
I'll get into a lot of trouble if I heal you on a Sabbath. No, no. Jesus says, come here. And then in verse 4, he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or harm, to save life or kill? This refers to the lawfulness of doing good on a Sabbath, which was a well-established fact in Jewish law. It is affirmed in Mark chapter 3 verse 4, in Luke chapter 6 verse 9, and in Luke chapter 14 verse 5. But these men, instead of recognizing that Jesus is right and they are wrong, were silent. Verse 5. He looked around at them with anger. These men who opposed the will of God, these men who opposed the way of God, these men who opposed the Son of God faced the wrath of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Hey, make no mistake, Jesus got angry. But he reserved his anger particularly for dry, dead religious hypocrites such as the men in this passage. He looked at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Well, you think, that's a happy ending to these stories, isn't it? Surely, when they saw the miracle that Jesus Christ did, they would fall on their knees and worship him. No, no. Read the last verse. The Pharisees went out immediately, held counsel with the Herodians, maybe just to say that the Herodians were a political faction aligned to the Herodian dynasty. Uh, They advocated for collaboration with the Roman authorities to maintain religious control, political uh, control and political stability. The Herodians hated the Pharisees and the Pharisees hated the Herodians, but they both hated Jesus more And so immediately they held counsel with the Herodians against him to destroy him. That's how this passage ends. Authority to do good. Who has authority? Who has authority in your life? Who has authority in this church? Who has authority in the church? Friends, it's Jesus Christ. It's this Jesus that we've been reading about. This Jesus that has the authority to forgive sins. This Jesus who has the authority to save sinners. This Jesus who has authority over man-made tradition. This Jesus that has authority over the Sabbath. This Jesus who has authority to do good. He has authority over you. Believer this morning, how do you apply this text will you submit to Jesus as the authority over your life you submit to Jesus Christ as Lord believer personally this means that you must surrender your will 
You must surrender your desires. You must surrender the plans of your life to his divine will. He's not just authoritative over you. He's authoritative over us. And that has implications for this church. Corporately, we must submit to the word of God. We must recognize that it is sufficient and authoritative for all matters of life and godliness. Because Jesus is authoritative over us personally. Jesus is authoritative over us as a church. Jesus is authoritative over his church. And when I look out over the gathering this morning, I recognize that it is practically impossible that every single person seated here is in Christ. Every single person seated here is a believer. Some of you who were dragged here this morning by a spouse, some of you came this morning because your parents demanded you come, some are here and you're confused as to why you even are sitting here, but your interest is piqued. I want to speak to you for a moment. What does this message of the authority of Jesus Christ mean for you? Well, opposition to the person and teaching of Jesus, it continues throughout the book of Mark. Mark chapter 8 verse 31 reads that Jesus taught them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And Jesus carried on telling people that about these scenes and this opposition and his response to them. In Mark chapter 9 verse 31, we read that the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Religious opposition to Jesus will result in his death. But in a dramatic turn of events, a dramatic turnaround, his death will lead to his resurrection as God substantiates that this is his man for the salvation of the world. And his resurrection will accomplish his mission to save the whosoever he wills, that that might be possible. Friend, Romans chapter 14 verse 9 reads, Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Practically, that means if you're one of those people at the beginning of this text, a tax collector and a sinner, you've been living a rebellious life and you think there's no possible way I could be saved by this man that this morning you hear your salvation is possible because Jesus died for your sins and he rose from the grave, amen, and you are called upon to cry out that he is king of kings and lord of lords. Practically this means that if you are sitting here this morning and you are a Pharisee, 
You've been trying to live a good life, maybe your whole life, coming to church, giving money, doing good, as good as you can. But you recognize as you, you read this passage that you will not be saved by a dry, old, dead, religious conviction that has no savior in it, no authority in it, no Lord in it, that this morning, friend, you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved because Jesus saves Pharisees and sinners alike. He saves Matthews and he saves Nicodemuses. He saved me and he can save you. Bow to the authority of Jesus Christ. Let's close our eyes in a word of prayer. Father God, even as the Lord Jesus prayed, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. For the glory of your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon. Find out more about Central Baptist Church at www.central.org.za.